0: Optimal health for high performers. This
1: is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Navaz Habib. Hello and welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib. I'm here with JP Erico. Nice to see you, JP. Good to see you too. We're speaking today on the topic of drug addiction and the autonomic nervous system. How the autonomic nervous system is affected by the use of particularly opioid medication, opioid drugs, addictive opioid drugs as well. And that's what we're going to dig into a little bit today. So we're going to speak on heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, and methamphetamines as the main kind of four that we're going to be looking into. And the pathophysiology, the way that they affect our nervous system overall, the autonomic nervous system in particular, and how Therapeutically, we can potentially utilize the vagus nerve, vagus nerve stimulation potentially to actually help in the recovery process from addiction to these medications and illegal substances as well. So, excited to dig into this with you today. You and I both know that drug addiction is one of those incredibly devastating and terrible catastrophes of our lifetimes. And we've seen this happening for decades now with different types of medications, different types of drugs. It's really quite sad to see. And I guess let's talk about kind of the fact that a lot of these medications have a root in something that is clinically beneficial, that there are certain medications that can be used in pain relief or stimulation where where they're used in the treatment of certain conditions. But obviously when they're used recreationally or in illegitimate reasons, we can actually have negative effects created by them.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, but let's give it a go. Opioids obviously are a drug that are or is used to treat pain. It has a very potent ability to suppress the activity in, in neurons and, and neural networks that are activated. And pain is a big activator of, of neural activity. And so it has the ability to suppress those pain signals in a way that allows a person to undergo a surgery, for example, or, or something, you know, if a broken bone occurs, that's extremely painful, but there's no, there's no clinical reason why that pain needs to be experienced. It's just simply something that happens and pro- given proper treatment, it's of no clinical value. Therefore, dulling the pain is something that has value. Therefore, we use opioids for those reasons. But by the same token, extended use of opioids, even in a clinical setting, a person who's on a chronic use of opioids because they have a chronic pain condition will inevitably become addicted to that medication. And that leads to lots of other problems ranging from cognitive issues to digestive issues to degenerative issues. So we want to want to be careful about the use of those. But then, as you said, recreational use of opioids is extremely bad because you're using that inhibition or neuronal inhibition for purposes that go outside the scope of trying to treat a a pain, a transient pain or an acute pain that's, that's going to get better. You're using it to basically for enjoyment purposes, if you will. And that then leads to addiction that much faster and to the acceleration of all the things that could happen that are bad. Methamphetamines and cocaine are sort of the opposite side of things. They're very excitatory, extremely excitatory in terms of what they're doing in the central nervous system. And as you said, methamphetamines were developed and or have been used clinically in situations like ADHD, that's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder to change the way the brain is functioning. I won't say it's not, it's certainly not to inhibit the brain, but it's using that excitatory pathway to enable... individuals who are experiencing those symptoms to focus. But again, an, an imperfect solution and the abuse that comes from overuse of those medications or chronic use of those medications is pretty bad. Cocaine's a little different. Cocaine is something that's been around for ages. People were using coca leaves in the jungle to just chew on to make you feel more alert. Um, it has a much more specific effect in the central nervous system. Methamphetamines are much broader in their excitatory applications. Cocaine was actually uh, was actually in Coca-Cola for a, for a couple of years, which is an interesting story. I'll, I'll just digress for a second. There was a, a Civil War officer who had experienced an injury and had, as a result of that, become addicted to sort of primitive opioids, morphine, that sort of thing. And he'd become addicted to it and he was trying to get himself off opioids and he started using cocaine which was actually around in the pharmaceutical world at the time and was actually added into certain formulations of medications in very very minute doses and so he made this elixir which was basically a preliminary form of coca-cola and he included a little bit of cocaine in the formulation And for, I guess, a couple of years, the formulation of Coca-Cola actually had cocaine in it, which is where the Coke comes from. But obviously the perfection, uh, and I use that in air quotes, the perfection of the manner of making cocaine into a crystallized powder or ultimately into a form, as, as we all know, crack cocaine is smoked. Basically, it doesn't change the drug itself. What it's changing is the speed with which it gets into your system and in the concentrations that it's getting in there and how radically it affects the neurotransmitter cascades in the
1: brain. Yeah, absolutely. Great overview there. And, and I guess we want to kind of dig into a quick review of neurons and the functions of the innate nervous system and innate immune system cells that are around there that help the brain function optimally. So why don't we kind of do a quick review of neuronal and brain function? Sure. And that's where
0: these drugs have their effect. They're not, you know, when an opioid is given, it's not necessarily treating the pain that you're experiencing with a broken leg in your leg. It's experiencing, you're experiencing that pain in your brain. And so the effects of the opioids are on the receptors in your brain, mu kappa and other receptors in your brain. And we'll get into some of that in a bit. But before we get there, we have to sort of understand how the brain works. (laughs) And uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about that on, on other podcasts. So I won't go into into the details we've reviewed before, but just in terms of at the cellular level, what's happening, a neuron is is a cell that has, just like every other cell, has a nucleus, has organelles, et cetera. So there's sort of a cell body portion of the neuron, and it sort of divides the rest of the cell into two halves. It's not necessarily geometrically halves, but we'll just call one half is sort of the dendritic side, and then the other side is the axonal side. On the dendritic side, you have many, many, many branches that are forming synapses with many, many different axons from other nerves. So you have lots of nerves that are sending signals into the one nerve that we're talking about. And the way those inputs come from all those other nerves are through synapses with the dendrites, the dendritic projections. They are gathering up information from each one of the synapses. And there can be thousands of those synapses per neuron. It's a tremendously complex network. But each one of those synapses is going to produce some, some signal. If the nerve that's upstream from the nerve we're talking about, so all, one of those thousand nerves that's sending signals, if it has a fires an action potential, that synapse is going to have a message that gets sent across into the nerve that we're interested in. The way that works is that the, one of those thousand nerves at that synapse forms the presynaptic terminal. And so that presynaptic terminal sits in very close proximity to the dendritic portion, which is the postsynaptic portion or side of the synapse. And they sit only about 20 to 40 nanometers apart from one another, so it's very, very close. On the, on the presynaptic side, there are small little bubbles, if you will, that sit inside that that tip of that axon. And those bubbles contain neurotransmitters. And when the action potential fires in that, that nerve in order to send the signal to the nerve we're interested in, that action potential causes those small little bubbles, which are called vesicles, to move towards the surface of that presynaptic terminal and to release their contents. Well, the contents of those vesicles are neurotransmitters. And so that neurotransmitter then enters into what's called the synaptic cleft, that space between the presynaptic and the postsynaptic terminal. And they move into that space. And then in certain high enough concentrations, they begin binding to receptors for that neurotransmitter on the postsynaptic terminal. So that's the side of the nerve that we're interested in. the dendritic side of that synapse is now becoming activated because neurotransmitters have left the presynaptic terminal by release of those vesicles and the neurotransmitters are binding to the receptors and then causing changes to those receptors that then change how there there's a fun, what the function of that postsynaptic terminal is now what is that what is that function that that it's trying to change what are those neurotransmitters trying to change what they're trying to change is the channels the ion channels that exist on that terminal so on that on that postsynaptic terminal there are ion channels and those ion channels are designed to allow in calcium or potassium or chloride or other ions sodium and those channels when they're opened or closed or or modified by the neurotransmitters they then begin to allow charge to accumulate or leave that that nerve, that dendrite. And when that occurs, over time, what you see is a buildup of charge if ultimately the nerve is going to fire. And that buildup of charge ultimately leads to, in the cell body of that nerve, an aggregation of all that, all those signals and all that pressure, and it will start an action potential of its own. And that action potential will then move down the axon of the nerve that we've been talking about that nerve we're interested in and it will then fire and all of its connections from the presynaptic side because now it's acting as the presynaptic side it will then send signals to the next, the next set of nerves that it's, it's connected to. So that's really sort of how it functions. There's a few nuances that are worth talking about just briefly. The presynaptic terminal and the postsynaptic terminal when they're communicating with neurotransmitters, that's generally referred to, and I say generally because there are some differences or some exceptions to that rule. It's generally called slow synaptic transmission. Takes on the order of hundreds of milliseconds to even hours. <laughs> to have the effect that it's trying to have. And what's happening is those neurotransmitters are binding to those receptors on the postsynaptic terminal. And there's a a cascade of different protein modifications, phosphorylations and, and, and other changes that have to occur before those ion channels change. There is however, fast synaptic transmission and fast synaptic transmission happens sort of very quickly and that's where there's a release of ions. So the release of ions and not neurotransmitters can actually activate a very rapid buildup of charge or release or release of charge so that the, you don't have to wait around for that nerve, that next that, that nerve we're interested to fire. That process of fast synaptic tran- transmission can, as I said, there are some exceptions to the general rule that can occur actually in combination with neurotransmitter binding directly. An example of that would be with GABA. GABA has two ways of acting on a nerve. GABA is almost always an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And what it does is it can bind to a GABA-A receptor or a GABA-B receptor. And in the case of one of the two, and I always get these confused, but I think it's GABA-A, what it does is it causes a conformal change to the receptor. That means it changes the shape of the receptor. And the receptor itself is the ion channel. And so by doing so, it allows chloride ions in and the chloride ions sort of quench the the, uh, rising charge buildup. And so as a result, you end up with a suppression or an inhibition of of activity. I know that's a lot of information. There's one more thing that I just wanna share, which is that when neurotransmitters are released from that presynaptic terminal, and this is really important in the case, especially of methamphetamine use, when neurotransmitters are released From that presynaptic terminal. They don't just bind or not bind and and sort of go away. They get reused. And so there's a mechanism for extracting after that release, extracting that those neurotransmitters back into either the presynaptic terminal or the postsynaptic terminal. We refer to that process as reuptake. So there's a reuptake of that neurotransmitter for reuse. We, you mentioned that there are other cells that are involved, and this is one of the really important ways in which another type of cell that's in the brain functions. They're, they're astrocytes. And astrocytes like to position themselves around that synapse, that connection of the presynaptic and postsynaptic terminal. And they sort of monitor what's going on inside that synaptic cleft. And one of the jobs is, that they have is to either take some of the neurotransmitter from the postsynaptic terminal and deliver it back to the presynaptic terminal or take it right out of the, sy- the synapse itself, right out of the synaptic cleft and then store it and return it to the presynaptic terminal or sometimes even just release it as sort of like an amplifier of the signal. So astrocytes get involved in, in the game as well.
1: That's really interesting to note that there is this immune cell that's sitting there that's working to support the nerve action potential and the nerve synapse function to ensure that that continues to work really well. And so it does lead to this understanding that there is this heavily intimate relationship between nerve function and the immune cells that are located within the entire nervous system and around these synapses and in their particular reason and, and the work that they do. So they're there to support the function of the synapse and the, the presynaptic terminal sending out those neurotransmitters to the postsynaptic neuron to create that action potential, to create those changes. And that reuptake needs to be happening really effectively. Otherwise these these signals would be a one and done type of situation where you're releasing the neurotransmitter, but then there's nothing left. And so that reuptake needs to be happening and, and modulated by the astrocytes in that particular case. So good to know that.
0: Yeah. I like to think of the system as being wet wired. So the role of the neuron is to be sort of the wiring, but there is this chemical connectivity between the neurons from the presynaptic to the postsynaptic terminal that involves neurotransmitters and ions. The astrocytes play a role in sort of monitoring what that wet environment looks like. And astrocytes are controlled in a large measure by microglial cells, which are, you know, the macrophages of the brain. And so, yeah, the activity state of the brain in terms of its immunological activity or immunological state really can have profound effects on how the brain functions. And we've talked about that with respect to depression and pain and other things where the, the immune system can really regulate in very large measure how you feel and what those signals are that are going on. It's worth just one last piece about the neurotransmitter role. The neurotransmitters really change, that release of neurotransmitters changes the activity level that the the neuron is going to function under what its excitability level, not actually the excitation in a given firing, but how it's going to function over a long period of time. So you can imagine that a neuron that is connected, let's say you have this neuron and it's connected upstream to a group of GABAergic neurons. So neurons that would release GABA onto it. Well, GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So therefore, if the upstream nerves are not firing, well, then the nerve we're talking about is going to be more excitatory. It's going to be more, it's going to have a higher potential to release an action potential. Um, whereas if that upstream network is firing a lot, then the nerve that we're talking about is going to be less likely to fire. And that isn't just in a millisecond that could be over a period of minutes or hours or longer. So the neurotransmitter release isn't just for the purposes of an immediate response. It's to change the
1: character of how that nerve is going to fire. Interesting. So it's a much more nuanced, very kind of, specific tool that it's kind of creating, depending on the way that it fires and the way that it's sending out that neurotransmitter signal. So yeah, and really the, guys, to note.
0: yeah the guys who figured this out, they are all uh, Nobel laureates. I mean, this yes, is, they should be, <laughs> this is really high-end, high-end uh, neuroscience to understand how this works.
1: You mentioned GABA, and I just want to quickly, briefly go over the basic neurotransmitters of the nervous system and just a brief overview of kind of the function of each in a general sense. Okay, sure. So I always like to
0: start historically. The first neurotransmitter that was identified was acetylcholine. And again, the the guys who came up with it, figured it out, won the Nobel prize. It was a pretty big deal. The other, acetylcholine is, is a relatively small molecule compared to some of the other neurotransmitters. It can be both excitatory and inhibitory. We've talked about where it comes from in the brain. It comes from the nucleus, of bacillus and Maynard, but it's very widely used, widely distributed throughout the brain as a result. Then there's norepinephrine, norepinephrine can be both. It can be modulatory in both directions. Tends to be, well, I won't say tends to be one or the other, but I think maybe a little bit more inhibitory than excitatory. GABA-
1: does a bit of both. You would call it more of a modulatory up and down potentially? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's right. Dopamine is also like that. In fact, dopamine and norepinephrine are so similar in terms of their molecular structure, that for a very long time, dopamine was actually not not even considered a neurotransmitter, it wasn't recognized wow. to be different, and, and so it was a pretty big deal. It's funny because there's so much dopamine in the brain that the fact that it was sort of ignored for so long is sort of surprising. Yeah. But the ultimate recognition that dopamine is is such an important neurotransmitter. Again, so important in this in the discussion of addiction because it is, you know, people talk about dopamine being sort of the pleasure neurotransmitter versus serotonin, which we'll talk about too. Serotonin being sort of more of the happiness and and mood elevation neurotransmitter. But again, serotonin is the same thing. It was considered to be sort of an afterthought. it was a, it was actually considered to be a contaminant that had to be removed from from sections of brain in order to really understand what was happening until somebody said, you know, well wait a minute, I think actually it does have an effect and so, you know, serotonin is, it's generally inhibitory, but it can, you know, it's always a little bit difficult to say one is purely inhibitory versus not, because as we talked about just a little a bit ago, neural circuits can be structured in such a way that activation of that, that nerve cluster can actually lead to downstream inhibition.
1: Yeah.
0: So even though it's activation, it's actually really causing a global inhibition of an activity. So, you know, again, you know, the individual neurotransmitters and what it's doing chemically at, a, you know, at the chemical molecular level is pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. How it works in the system can be actually quite, quite a bit more complicated. Yeah. And then the last neurotransmitter to talk about is glutamate. And it's kind of funny because it is such an important neurotransmitter in terms of It is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter of the brain. It's used, you know, pretty much everywhere in the brain as the primary excitatory neurotransmitter. Same way GABA is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter. Glutamate is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter. And it was not actually realized to be a neurotransmitter until like the 1980s. I mean, so we're talking, you know, we're talking in the Reagan administration, they figured out that that glutamate was maybe a you know, I remember when I went to college in the late 80s, people were talking about monosodium glutamate, you know, the additive that goes in a lot of Chinese food, and the fact that it had an effect on the brain and it make it give you headaches. And I thought to myself, you know, I think to myself now, I was like, wow, that's because it's a neurotransmitter.
1: <laughs> it's literally linked to glutamate. No kidding. <laughs>
0: so In any event, that's, you know, those are the biggies, glutamate, GABA, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, which is so similar to it, and then acetylcholine.
1: I'm going to throw a couple little fun nuances out there. Serotonin, the vast majority, somewhere between 90 and 95% is located in the gut, actually produced in the gut. And it comes from tryptophan as the root amino acid for that, 5-hydroxytryptophan as the precursor to serotonin. On the dopamine and norepinephrine side, they have, funny enough, because you mentioned how similar the two are, they have the same kind of, they're on the same cascade of production and and actually being produced. So amino L-tyrosine, tyrosine being the amino acid precursor to both norepinephrine and dopamine. And they're exactly along that same path of production and breakdown of each of these neurotransmitters. So those amino acids are really necessary for the production of those particular neurotransmitters. A big chunk of those are actually found within the gut as well, but not nearly as much as serotonin. Serotonin is like the gut molecule, and it is really what drives, interestingly, those gut feelings and the happiness and the joy that comes from having a well-functioning digestive system, which is really nice to kind of talk about that gut-brain axis. And then when it comes to acetylcholine, we know, and for you and I, obviously, it's kind of that very important neurotransmitter linked to vagus nerve function. It's the only one used by the vagus nerve in its effects widespread. And it's also acetylcholine is the primary neurotransmitter for muscle use. So muscles use acetylcholine, or or muscles are stimulated by acetylcholine being secreted by those nerve endings that go to the muscles as well. So just little fun nuances about those particular neurotransmitters.
0: Yeah. We talk often about the fact that mother nature, when she finds a, you know, something that works, she likes to to reuse her own work. There's no question that amino acids are the, the basis for so many of the neurotransmitters. In fact, There are other, you know, lesser known neurotransmitters that have, you know, that are used in very specific situations that are other amino acids. I mean, glycine can be a neurotransmitter in some capacity. Glutamate is, you know, glutamic acid. It's, you know, you talked about tyrosine. There's a host of them. And then the same thing is true in terms of mother nature reusing her same tools with respect to the receptors you know, we talked about GABA receptors. you know, one of the GABA receptors is a G-coupled, G-protein coupled receptor. That's the same class of receptor as, you know, literally dozens and dozens of other types of receptors. And so GABA-A and GABA-B are different types of receptors, but they're neurotransmitter receptors that are used in the synapse. But You also have the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, which we spent a lot of time talking about because it's so intimately involved in the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, but it's the same type of receptor. Mm -hmm. It is of the same form. So, and it uses the same knowledge, the same, I won't say knowledge, but the same tricks that mother nature used with the GABA receptor uses with the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So again, just interesting little tidbits of information for people to digest. I love it.
1: Let's dig into the addiction side now and let's talk about what addiction is. And let's dig into, let's start with opioids as part of that discussion.
0: Sure. So, NIDA is the National Institute for Drug Addiction in the United States. And, uh, you know, in the context of drugs of abuse, they describe it. I'm just going to read the quote because I think it really describes it pretty well. It says addiction is defined as chronic relapsing disorders characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite of the, despite the adverse consequences. It's considered a brain disorder because it involves functional changes to brain circuits involved in reward. So again, we're going to talk a lot about dopamine stress. So we'll talk about serotonin and self-control. These changes may last a long time after a person has stopped taking drugs. So that's how they describe it. Um, I would go on to say that the changes that happen as a result of those drugs being used lead not only to changes in things like reward analysis, self-control, managing stress and anxiety, but go to the inflammation state of the brain. So it leads to pain. It leads to degenerative disorders, cognitive function, and those, those are really damaging in terms of a person's ability to move past that experience of of drug addiction, it's not impossible. And I certainly want to give people who, who might be listening to this, who have a drug addiction problem, the encouragement to say, this is something that is treatable. There are medications and therapies that do work to help restore what's been damaged and to bring you back to the state you were prior to the drug use and again, that there's nothing more important for you and for your family and for other people to take the steps to do that.
1: Yeah, no question about it. And I think what we're learning is that addiction to drugs is actually driven by hacking that neurotransmitter system. In some way, these chemicals have have overtaken the neural circuitry and created pathways that they want driven, that are driving behaviors accordingly. And it's not necessarily the person that has created the problem, but rather the biochemistry that has been hacked in the negative way to create the addictive behavior.
0: Yeah. And and we talked about it before, and it's just worth mentioning again, that a lot of addiction occurs as a result of medically dispensed opioids. You know, there was a, a study done in California looking at the cost associated with the dispensing of opioid medications in the emergency room to patients with headache. And and this is particularly interesting to me because headache is a condition that if you talk to a headache neurologist, he'll tell you opioids are not an appropriate treatment. They will not really work to treat a headache, a migraine or a cluster headache. They don't function in that capacity, that it's not going to work. And yet, of emergency room doctors when when polled, indicated that one of the things that they would use in a patient who had a severe migraine who came to the emergency room is an opioid. So the state of California did a study just to point out how damaging that, that mistake is. And what they found is that something on the order of $2 billion worth of cost is incurred by the system. And that's just the healthcare system. That's not the personal devastation. $2 billion worth of cost every year is associated with the dispensing of opioids for headache. That's, and that's just for headache. So you can only imagine the the devastating costs associated with it, but let's, you know, let's dig into, you know, how opioids work, what, you know, what do they do in the brains at the molecular level? And so the brain actually has opioid receptors and Mm -hmm. that's because our brain and our bodies actually make, versions of that type of molecule endogenously. We make them to treat, you know, to treat ourselves against pain that we incur. So, you know, people talk about, you know, I, you know, I broke my leg and it hurt like, you know, it hurt so bad. But even during that experience that your brain was producing its own opioids, if you will, it kind endorphins and kephalins and other things that are used to suppress pain. Now, it doesn't just happen in a broken leg. When you go out and you decide you're going to run 5 miles, there's a lot of there are a lot of things that can occur and do occur while you're running at your joints and otherwhere that hurt that your body would otherwise respond to or your brain would otherwise respond with experience of pain. Yeah. And you don't experience it because if you're healthy, you don't experience it because your brain is producing the endorphins and enkephalins necessary to bind to the receptors. Now, there are three types of receptors, three types of opioid receptors. There's a mu, delta, and kappa. They're all variants of the same, again, G-coupled, G-protein-coupled, and that they trigger that slow synaptic transmission we talked about to change ion channels. But in general, the idea is that opioids will suppress signaling. Because, again, as we said, pain is something that's an active process Lots of action potentials and activity going on in pain and opioids suppress it. It suppressed it suppresses it both at the presynaptic terminal and the postsynaptic terminal, which is kind of interesting because it doesn't need to be at both places. It really only needs to be at the postsynaptic terminal, but we do have it at both places. Maybe that's a function of how important it is that Mother Nature said, listen. We can't get it at the postsynaptic terminal. We better also do it at the presynaptic terminal, and put, and they put them there too. But in general, you only really need it at the postsynaptic terminal.
1: Yeah, because you're then not going to get the effect. But clearly, there's this backup plan to make sure that it works and ensures that the effect is not mediated secondarily. Just as a quick little reminder, the names of some of these more common opi- opioids that we are aware of morphine, heroin, oxycontin, oxycodone and more recently fentanyl.
0: Yeah, but you also have, you know, opioids being added into other medications like Percocet and, you know, Vicodin and things like that that people might not realize have an opioid in it, codeine, these, you know, codeine, Vicodin, they, they Percocet, they have yeah, they have like a Tylenol, acetaminophen in it or something like that, but they also have an opioid. And so it's really important to be aware that if you've been prescribed one of these medications for pain, that you wean yourself off that relatively quickly. Unfortunately, the medical community tends to prescribe those lesser or lower dose opioids in, you know, relatively freely, you know, codeine, Tylenol with codeine. I mean, literally it's, Tylenol with codeine it's it almost sounds friendly yeah. um, and yet at the same time it's got an opioid in it and you got to be really careful about how long you use it because you can become addicted to it you can have those long-term changes to the brain happen very very easily if you don't wean yourself back onto like an Advil or a Nuprin or just a plain Tylenol pretty yeah. quickly. The I other remember
1: thing getting a prescription from my dentist after they pulled my wisdom teeth for t3 plus codeine and i did not fill it on purpose and i was able to to not go down that path but i I realized just how common these prescriptions are and how easily they are prescribed because you're right it sounds t3 with codeine no big deal right like it's not the end of the world but in reality it can create these changes in the run in those circumstances where it can actually drive addiction potentially
0: yeah. And, and, and even worse is what's happening right now with fentanyl. I mean, fentanyl is such a potent drug. It, you know, it, one could make a very, very strong argument. I know that there's arguments on the other side, but I actually, I don't believe the arguments on the other side. So I'm I'm going to just tell you that I don't know that fentanyl has a real legitimate use outside of the most extreme pains, things like, you know, massive burns and things like that. I just don't see it having a use that's appropriate the the ability to deliver a lethal dose of fentanyl is so easy because it's literally a grain the size of a piece of sand would be lethal and it's now showing up in drugs that are have nothing to do with you know with pain relief that opioids would otherwise be used with it's showing up on the street in Things like Xanax and, and, and drugs that are, you know, really shouldn't have anything to do with the, the opioid receptor at all. And yet they're being mixed in in order to get people addicted. And, and in many cases with lethal consequences, it's, you know, it's killing hundreds of people a day in the United States. So I, you know, I've made some comments to friends about the fact that I think that, you know, fentanyl is borderline is reaching the point where it's actually a weapon of mass destruction, and and we have it to consider- numbers.
1: Yeah, and I don't blame you. Like that is, it's a ridiculous number of people that are both either negatively affected and pushed into an addictive state, or potentially killed by the use of these medications. It's really sad.
0: Yeah. So I actually, I mean, I think we have a, an argument to say that anybody who's you know fought, caught with fentanyl that isn't you know a hospital pharmacist for use in those settings. It, it almost seems to me like that's that's a, you know that's a terrorist act. But I'll leave it to others to make you know those judgments. You know, and, and I'm certainly not a politician, but I have pretty strong feelings about about the the fentanyl problem that that exists. But back to back to our topic uh, about the medicine. You know, the the goal is to alter it, uh, of an opioid in a proper clinical setting. The goal is to turn off the nerves that are you know that are going to be driving the pain circuit. And so one of the ways it does that is in, is inhibiting the the ion flow because we talked about slow synaptic transmission and fast synaptic transmission it it does both. It's going to turn off the slow synaptic transmission so there's no neurotransmitter release, but it's also really altering the p- calcium and potassium ion flow that leads to the inhibition of firing. Uh, frankly, over a long term, it's changing those those uh, those ion channels. Mm-hmm. So the effects will last for for a significant period of time you know ultimately your brain has the ability to suppress a lot of pain by itself i mean we have to sort of learn how to do that you know everybody sort of got an innate level of of being able to do it but you can actually train to have the ability to suppress pain and you know you talk about some of the things that you know the navy seals learn how to do as part of their training is actually pain suppression. And and you say, well, how do you do that? Well, it comes from understanding how the brain actually suppresses pain itself. And and so the brain uses something called descending inhibition. Descending inhibition actually has two pathways. One is a direct pathway of norepinephrine, and the other one is the two-step process with serotonin and GABA. And the process has the ability to, in in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, which is where sort of all those pain signals come up. It has the ability not to block the signaling of the pain signals, but to block the, the nerves that would become activated as a result. Um, so it's called descending inhibition because you've got this ascending signal coming up through the spinothalamic tract or the tracts into the brain in an ascending direction. So pain from the body is coming up through that spinothalamic tract into the brain, into that area to generate pain perception. Descending inhibition is coming down from the the, the the higher parts of your brain and is suppressing that activation. It's saying, no, we don't have to have experience pain. And a great example of that is, and I encourage anybody who wants to listen to the TED talk by Lorimer Mosley, he gives a great accounting of his own experiences where he was walking through the bush in, in Australia and felt something brush past his leg and he describes how the signal goes up into the you know up through the spinal cord up into the brain and it was a pain signal but his brain created a recognition or an understanding about that experience by by thinking about its own past you know ha- have I been here before have I walked through the jungle you know in the same way have I experienced something brushing past my leg before yes it's nothing so it created a perception that allowed descending inhibition to block that pain signal saying, yeah, it's nothing. It's benign. It's just a twig, right? You know, going past your leg. It turned out to be a completely wrong signal. It was actually, it, he had actually been bitten by a, a what is really a deadly snake and he managed to survive. But the experience then changed his brain so that the next time he was there and something brushed past his leg, it felt incredibly painful because now the descending inhibition was actually reversed. And it was, it was almost like a descending amplification process. And the pain was actually just a twig that was brushing past his leg. So descending inhibition and opioid use and pain signaling all sort of go together. Opioids work a little differently than descending inhibition. They work on the, on the, on the, the activation side versus the, the receiving side, but opioids, you know, can do this naturally or because of endorphins or enkephalins, but then what happens is when the opioids, and this is how addiction occurs, that what happens is the opioids will begin to block things and not require the body to produce its own endorphins or enkephalins, or it reduces the brain's requirement for descending inhibition. And so you see what ends up happening is your natural production of endorphins and, and enkephalins starts to drop because you're relying on this outside opioid to provide that normal protection against pain signaling and then your descending inhibition that's serotonin which is so tied to mood and pain and norepinephrine and gaba which is you know also part of that descending inhibition all of those start to also, I won't call them atrophy, but they start to just not function in the way that they were supposed to. And we know from all the work that we've talked about before that when those things come down and they stop being produced, then when you you take the opioid away, you start to feel pain. You start to feel terrible. You start to have anxiety, stress, all of these panic attacks, the withdrawal symptoms, they show up because... You've removed what those other things were supposed to be doing, but they're now not being produced.
1: Yeah, these natural occurring circuits have been overrun, basically, and and turned off because now you have this endod or exogenous source that's creating a significantly stronger effect down that same pathway that is going to create that negative reaction where we're then not going to produce our own endorphins and exogenous or endogenous skills to help manage those, the the enkephalins and the endorphins and the serotonin as well, obviously, right? So then the mood and and the challenges that come from imbalance and those other neurotransmitters. And so I just want to kind of point to why a lot of people that are able to overcome addiction have to find a particular way to restart those systems in the production of endorphins. And so often people with addictive tendencies will go back towards working out almost to an addictive level, right? To be able to create that or, or to rebound from that, that circumstance where they've turned off that system. They really need to drive that system back up.
0: Yes, no, there's no question. Exercise is a great way to, to activate all of those neurotransmitters, including acetylcholine as well, and to increase... The levels to which they're expressed, which of course increases their effectiveness in descending inhibition. It just, it takes time. That's why the withdrawal process is so painful. The withdrawal process is painful. It is, it, it is not something that lasts forever. It lasts for some period of time, but there are effects that can be far longer lasting as a result of opioid use. And that is a function of the changes to the inflammation state and changes to how pain is processed in general. So you begin to have to rely on other, other things that you, you prior to that use weren't using, but you're absolutely right. That exercise and, you know, emotional attachments to people can be a way to, as you said, almost become addicted to something that's not as dangerous. Like exercise is not necessarily as dangerous to become addicted to, obviously You know, in extremes, it can be. But, but yes, you want to find a way to supplement or to reactivate the natural analgesic and anxiolytic pathways in your brain as quickly as possible. And that's where, that's where tools like this is a perfect example where you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system is uh, such a good way to restore. Those because we talk about it, it's the rest, relax, and or rest, digest, and restore mode. When you activate the parasympathetic, you're restoring the ability of your brain to produce those descending inhibition neurotransmitters and to alter the pathways back in a way that reduces the withdrawal symptoms. Actually, really quickly, and we'll talk about some clinical studies that have proven this. But at the end of the day, what we're what we're talking about is using your autonomic nervous system to restore the pain relieving and analgesic effect that are endogenous to you mm-hmm. while you're getting off the, the opioid.
1: I know it's not something that we plan to talk about, but just to kind of bring it up or, or to ask your opinion on it, methadone and the use of methadone as a tool to help get off of opioid addiction. How does it work? What, what is the pathway or the function of methadone? So methadone is, is another opioid.
0: I mean, it's really, um, you know, it's a step down drug in that it's not as potent. It becomes a little bit more difficult to build up a tolerance to it or build up to levels that are, are lethal. The opposite of that is naloxone. So mm-hmm. some people think methadone and naloxone, well, yeah, they're both part of the, the sort of heroin step-down problem. Uh, naloxone is actually sort of the opposite. It blocks the opioid receptor. So it's actually it actually blocks your ability to experience the benefits of the opioid that you're taking, but it also has the ability to block your own endogenous levels of opioids, which can be a good thing in that if the opioid isn't there or the opioid isn't functioning, that the fact that your brain's minimal levels of production of opi- of endogenous opioids like enkephalins and endorphins needs to get ramped up very quickly. It sort of pushes your brain to produce them in larger quantities more quickly. But during the period that you're on naloxone, it, it's kind of tough. So it's a great way to help people get off drugs, but it, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily a friendly, friendly experience while you're on it.
1: I'm going to recommend if anybody hasn't yet watched it, Dope Sick is a really, really great show talking about kind of how the opioid pandemic and the whole epidemic of, of opioid use and overuse and addiction has kind of gone out of control through oxy, it was OxyContin and the whole pathway there. And it was a really very, very in-depth view of, of the process by which people often go down that path in an unfortunate situation and become addicted and and the effects of hopefully being able to recover from that as well. So a really, really wonderful show called Dope Sick.
0: Yeah. You know, just as we sort of conclude the conversation about opioids for right now, we'll come back to it because we definitely should get to cocaine and methamphetamines because they work by a completely different pathway. But but before we leave it, there there was actually one group, and I think they were out of, I want to say out of Tel Aviv, what they were doing was using, putting patients literally who are opioid addicts into a, into a temporary coma to allow them to move through that, that period of withdrawal without actually physically experiencing that they could experience it while unconscious, because it really is a chemical process Mm -hmm. that just needs to, you need to detoxify, and then you need to figure out ways to restore the proper balance of serotonin, GABA, norepinephrine and and others, and to restore enkephalin and endorphin production. It can be done. It's so difficult because of the changes that happen in the brain, and this is especially true of methamphetamine, but in any drug of abuse setting, it's so difficult to get the individual to recognize and appreciate the value of the reward that's, that's down the line of, of being, being clean. We'll talk about it a little bit in, uh, in more depth, but I think it goes to the idea of how do I view the future? Do I view the future as something that is worth going for? Is It's worth sacrificing today in order to get to that future reward of a better life. And how you calculate that is really a function of how your brain functions. I mean, because you are in fact calculating that. And so drugs of abuse can really affect that. And we'll talk about a little bit more, but let's dive into cocaine and methamphetamines.
1: Sure, yeah. Let's dig into the cocaine side for sure.
0: Yeah, so cocaine works completely differently from opioids. Opioids are inhibitors. I think we all we all know cocaine is an upper. It gives you a high. The high of a cocaine addict is wired. Um, and so what's happening is that it's increasing... The release of, of neurotransmitters and increasing the effectiveness. It leads to higher dopamine expression. It leads to high, especially dopamine. It's really a big dopamine driver. But the big thing that it's doing is releasing glutamate. And the effect of that glutamate, which we said is the ubiquitous excitatory neurotransmitter, it's causing the release of, of glutamate in areas of the brain, especially the reward pathways in what's called the ventral tegmental region by releasing it, like the nucleus accumbens, et cetera, those areas of the brain that are associated with rewards. Um, and, and that's, there's lots of dopamine that gets released as a result. So we talk about dopamine sort of being the addiction um, neurotransmitter. The reason we talk about it that way, it's not really the right way to talk about it, but when we talk about it that way, it's because it's reinforcing that behavior as a result of a glutamate released by the cocaine. Now, a completely separate effect of cocaine, but it's really important, is that it activates the stress circuits in the brain. So it actually leads to paranoia and anxiety and stress. So that that wired experience, which is different from a high, that wired experience of being almost stressed, you know, as we talk about sympathetically activated, because that is, is in fact what's happening, is a way that cocaine forces you back to using cocaine more is because you get stressed that, and you feel as if the only way to offset the stress is to get that reward, get the dopamine release. So you use cocaine, and then you use more cocaine, and then you use more cocaine because you're feeling more and more stressed, and more, you know, more paranoid. And as a result, you need the reward to offset the, you know, the the stress you're feeling.
1: Yeah, there's no. For those who haven't experienced it themselves, I think the Wolf of Wall Street clearly shows that that exact right kind of pathway by which stress drives the desire for reward, which drives the desire for that dopamine expression or that dopamine effect, which is actually coming from this exogenous cocaine that's going to create that, that effect. And so it drives the desire. So every time a new stressor pops up, the desire for that reward comes up because it feels like it's blocking that stress or it's it's the outcome of the stress. And, and you mentioned kind of what does the future look like to you and, and what are you experiencing? And so every time that stress pops up, the desire for that reward becomes stronger. And so you almost look for that cocaine fix to help feel that reward.
0: Yeah. You know, as we're talking, and, and I know we've talked about this in the past as well, the parallels between the effects of cocaine on the central nervous system, which A, is is activating that glutamate release in the areas of the brain associated with reward, but also with stress, are very similar to the, the design and it's, and make no mistake, it's designed in to both video game use, and social media use. The designers of these programs, whether they're games or social media apps and and social media sites, it's designed to give you rewards that are activating your dopamine centers. And at the same time, the natural state of the environment in the game, there's stress, but also in the social media world, there's stress associated with the social engagement, you know, especially especially for young girls. There's lots of social stresses associated with how they're perceived. Not that boys don't also, but it's particularly dangerous with girls. And I've got a teenage girl, so I know how how dangerous that those or how stressful those social situations can be. But they're designed in, so you got to be careful not only with cocaine, but you got to be careful with the use of social media and the access of social media to people who aren't really understanding how they're designed. They're designed to do something that is actually kind of dangerous. It's kind of changing your brain. And, and one of the things that cocaine does, and I think if you actually analyze and look at what's happening with social media and gaming, it's the same thing. Cocaine actually diminishes the functioning of the orbital frontal cortex and what it means is that you start to make bad decisions and you you fail to recognize how your behavior, your drug use behavior might have negative consequences. And the reason I say there's a parallel to social media or to gaming, I mean, I think if you've if you've got a teenage kid, I got a teenage boy as well, you know, watching them play video games and the things that they do how long they play the things that they stop doing mm-hmm. as a result of the fact that they want to play those video games and I, i'm not to suggest that my son's addicted to them but i've just seen you know him and and his friends go into places and do things on video games that and say things to one another that they wouldn't say in a setting where they were out playing basketball or they they failed to come to dinner, they failed to play basketball outside if they wanted to, or to do things that they otherwise regret after they're done. It's like, oh boy, I really wish I had done that while you were here, but what we did was play video games. And I think to myself, that's bad decision-making. That was a failure to understand the consequences of your decision-making while playing the video game, which I know is addictive to begin with. So again, there's a place for video games in the world. There's a place for social media in the world. Just got to be careful about the effects that it's having on the central nervous system and on neurotransmitter expression.
1: Yeah, there's no question about it. And I'm lucky enough to not be in that position quite yet with my girls, but we see the effect of it. And the mental health kind of situation in North America and worldwide, in fact, I think is being driven by a lot of this. There's a really great book called Hooked, which talks about how to get people addicted to your apps. And then the gentleman who wrote that book decided that that's not what he intended when he wrote that book and all these apps that were being created on the back of that science of creating that dopaminergic effect and creating that addictive and reward-driving experience, went and wrote another, which the name of it is escaping me, but it'll come to me in a moment, but really, really wonderful book on how to avoid getting into that trap and how to get away from that. I'm going to find the name of that book while, while you yeah, go I'll on. Love to, love to know it and read about it. You know, the danger of
0: some of these drugs is also in How you become tolerant to the effects of them. And the definite, the technical definition of, of tolerance is the process by which it takes progressively more drug to deliver the same effect. So, you know, if you start out with a small amount of cocaine, it takes a larger and larger and larger amount of cocaine to deliver the same benefits. And that's really a function of the fact that your dopamine levels that are being released as a result of the drug become smaller and smaller because your brain is trying to regulate itself. And it's seeing all this glutamate that's being released. It's seeing that it's being pushed in this direction and it's saying, no, t- too much dopamine. So I'm going to release less and less. But of course, the goal is, of the drug use is to experience the same high. And so it takes more and more drug to to get to that same high. So it's a very dangerous situation because there are, you know, cardiac effects and and other effects that cocaine has that can actually be deadly. And so you end up ODing because you just can't get that same level of high out of what was the level you used before. Now, the other thing that happens is that your brain, because it's regulating itself, In order to get motivated to do something, it's going to, because that's what dopamine is primarily there to do, it's to give you motivation to do something, motivate that process or any process requires so much dopamine that you can sort of overshoot. So the other effect of this, of of overuse of drugs is you get this hyped up here all the time. So you can see sort of two different things. You could have this, you know, reduced amount of dopamine that gets released. But when you really do get motivated, there's this overshooting and you get hyped up. So it's just sort of that drug behavior, that drug use behavior, or the behavior of a user that starts to become characteristic of this, of this change in dopamine levels.
1: I found the name of the book. It is Indistractable by Near IL. Really, okay. really wonderful book. Definitely a recommendation for anybody who has teens or they themselves are feeling like they're addicted to that up and down scroll of Instagram and TikTok and whatnot. So just be really careful with that. But Indistractable is the book by Near Eyal.
0: Yeah, it's really important. I mean, I'm at basketball practice with my son on, uh, you know, my son's on a regular basis. And I see, I see adults, I see parents sitting there, just endlessly scrolling through. That. And I think to myself, your son's playing basketball. This is an opportunity for you to be watching him and see how he's playing and, and to sort of connect it. And yet you're just sitting there scrolling through Instagram. It's kind of sad actually. So maybe I'll suggest that they read it Distractible. Let's switch gears to talk about methamphetamines because it, methamphetamines are sort of in some levels, cocaine on steroids. It's pretty remarkable how it works. It's a neurotransmitter in and of itself. Wow. And so it binds to a receptor and then we actually have a receptor in the brain called trace amine associated receptor one, TAR1 is its name. And the effect of TAR1 is to literally completely inhibit or actually even reverse that uptake mechanism, reuptake mechanism we talked about. And it's true of serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, I'm sorry, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. This TAR1 receptor, when it's activated by methamphetamine, literally stops the reuptake mechanism and reverses it so that you get such an incredible flood of neurotransmitters into the synapse. It's almost impossible to block the activation of the postsynaptic terminal as a result of it. So again, just to revisit what we talked about before, when you have the release of a neurotransmitter, there are vesicles inside the presynaptic terminal that are carrying that neurotransmitter that are pushed to the surface and they release the neurotransmitter. That neurotransmitter will then bind to the, its receptor on the postsynaptic terminal and after some short period of time it will that neurotransmitter will be pulled out of the synapse to sort of restore you know to move on to the next signal if you will to pull that neurotransmitter out of the synaptic cleft into either the presynaptic terminal for recycling put it back into the vesicles and reuse it or pull it into the postsynaptic terminal and then you might chemically modify it and then transfer it to the astrocyte. So it brings it back up to the presynaptic terminal again. So ultimately the goal is mostly, it's not always, but mostly is to bring that neurotransmitter back up into the presynaptic terminal, and get it out of the synaptic cleft. What happens when you activate TAR1 with methamphetamines is you reverse that uptake process. So That neurotransmitter stays there for a very long period of time. And it actually pushes all of the rest of the neurotransmitters that might be in those uptake channels, transporters back into the synaptic cleft. So it's sort of an amplifier turned up to, to 11, if you will, if anybody remembers spinal tap, you know, this one goes all the way to 11. The challenge with methamphetamines is that in the process of doing that, it's depleting the levels of neurotransmitters in, in the central nervous system. And so you end up with all of these, what are called monoamines, the serotonin, the norepinephrine and dopamine being depleted out of the presynaptic terminal and sitting in that synaptic cleft. Now that feels good. That feels good for an extended period of time. It could be eight to 12 hours of, of a positive experience, but it's entirely artificial, a parallel I mean, it's a very, uh, it's a good parallel, I guess. The drug classes of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, both of those classes of drugs are used to treat depression. And the goal of them is to block the reuptake mechanism, much the same way we just talked about methamphetamines, blocking and reversing those reuptake mechanisms. But they do it specifically, for serotonin or serotonin and norepinephrine when it's when it's both of them. And the goal is to leave the serotonin that's available in that synaptic cleft, because you don't have enough of it. Now we've talked about reasons why you might not have enough serotonin, you might not have enough serotonin, because the synthetic pathway is being diverted by inflammation. That's one possible way. But If you have a problem generating enough serotonin, then it's appropriate to have that level of serotonin artificially advanced or enhanced by blocking the reuptake mechanism. Yes. However, or in the case of inflammation, you could have excessive reuptake mechanisms. So the reuptake mechanisms are working too quickly. And so you're trying to block some of them to get it back down to normal. Methamphetamine use is in an environment where there is no pathology pre existing. So there is no reason why those reuptake mechanisms should be blocked. There is no reason why those vesicles that are carrying those neurotransmitters should be, should be forced to the surface and depleted more readily. And as a result, the levels of monoamine that are left in, or the neurotransmitters that are put into that synaptic cleft, are just overwhelming. They're overwhelming. Now, during the period of the high, you feel great, but that's because you have this mood elevation, this reward centers are being activated. Everything is being activated because you've got all these these neurotransmitter effects happening. But then what happens is you stop and the, br- the brain is trying to do, is trying to get rid of those neurotransmitters. And so what it does is it releases mechanisms that are designed to break down those monoamines and get rid of them. Cause it's got this feeling the brain is experiencing. There's this way too much of it. And mm-hmm. so it starts to break them down and then you end up with a lack of the appropriate neurotransmitters. And then you have dysfunction in the, in the nervous system as a result. Now, one of the failures that occurs as a result of methamphetamine use, and we touched on it before is that your brain has to go through a calculation. It's what's called a discount rate, if you will. The easiest parallel is if I offer you $10 and I say, I'll give you $10 if you give me, I don't know, something that's worth $10 that's, so you know, that you've got. And you say, sure, I'll do that. You know, and then I say, but no, no, I-, I want you to give me that thing now and I'll give you the $10 a year from now. Well, then you're gonna have to say, Well, you know, okay, $10 a year from now isn't worth as much as $10 is today. I have to apply a discount to that mm-hmm. because the future value. Lots of things could happen between now and then there's risks, there's inflation, there's all these other things that could happen. So I have to apply a discount rate to it. Now I'm talking about it in the context of a financial transaction, but you do that in every situation. You do it in emotional situations. You do that in situations where you want something, you want to spend some time going fishing. Well, are you going to wait till you have a vacation or are you going to play hooky from work today? I mean, one of the, you have to have the ability to say, well, okay, I'm willing to put off that positive feeling of going fishing for another month or two until vacation time. I'm going to do that so that I, you know, the value is still there. I appreciate the value, but there's other things that are more important right now. Methamphetamines have the ability to completely disrupt that calculation. It has the ability to distort the, you know, much the same way we talked about in cocaine. It has the ability to disrupt your ability to understand the consequences of drug use and other you know behaviors that are not appropriate methamphetamines do that but they also have the ability to distort your brain's ability to calculate future value and basically discount it too much so you know it's why sometimes people you know addicts will will mistreat their own children or do things that are really you know, devastating to their futures because they don't really see any value in the future of having, you know, having something or having a good relationship or having a job or having things like that. They don't, they no longer see the value in the future because the discount that they apply to that future is so radical that they just don't motivate themselves. There's no motivation to delay gratification anymore, it's gone. And the only way to get that back is to withdraw from the drug use and allow the brain to come back into functioning properly. In the case of meth, that's a little more difficult because the damage is pretty severe because you're not just talking about one neurotransmitter, you're talking about really everything. Which is really sad and a little scary, not gonna lie. It's very scary, very scary.
1: So, Obviously, this is a very, very in-depth and heavy discussion and, and something that I feel needs to be broken up into a second part where we can actually dig into the autonomic effects and the therapies that can be provided to help people overcome these challenges therapeutically. And that includes vagus nerve stimulation. And there's many research studies that we're going to discuss in the next episode, and that will be coming out very soon. So Today, we're going to end our discussion on the effects of drug addiction and how each one of these different medications and uh, recreational drugs can create the effects that they do, their neuroscience, the effects of them. And then next week or the next episode, we're going to dig into sympathetic activation, vagus nerve stimulation, and how to provide optimal therapy to overcome these challenges. All right. So Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for digging into this topic with me, JP. Absolutely. And we'll catch you all on the next one.